This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anyone looking to hire or be hired in the business of agriculture, I would love to talk to you and them. Uh, you can always send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. Anyway, you're here to hear more stories of agricultural innovation. I hope you caught last week's episode with Zev Pace. Uh, it was the first half of our Hempinar, the live recording event we did about hemp. As I mentioned last week, this is the first time I've ever done this, and I think it went over really well. We had, I think, uh, 70 or something um, registrants for the, the live recording event itself, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was fun to hear some questions from uh, those that would be listening. So would encourage you, if you'd like to check out other live events like that, to go to futureofag.com. They're going to be front and center, a little icon for you to uh, join us via email and engage with us via email. That way I can email you back and forth, and I will even email you a video of that first live recording. If you go do that here in the next couple months, I'll, I'll wait a couple months and then and then send that out to everybody. So anyway, we are here talking about hemp. As you know, hemp has been a hot topic in agricultural circles. Everybody's wondering if it's all hype or if there actually is some reasons to be op optimistic. One reason I, I'm so glad to bring the guest on that's here today, Dr. David Williams, is when I first reached out to him about coming on as a hemp expert, his only concern was that he does not consider himself a hemp hype man. He, he is a scientist and he's said, I will bring the data, but I won't always get everybody excited about the industry of hemp. I want to bring the realities. And I said, Dr. Williams, that's exactly what we're looking for. So uh, I can think of no better expert to talk about hemp than Dr. Williams, who is with the University of Kentucky. Kentucky, as you know, has been uh, among the leaders in the hemp industry in the United States. And Dr. Williams has certainly been instrumental in their progress. So I think you'll enjoy this uh, interview with Dr. David Williams concerning hemp opportunities and reality. Here's Dr. Williams. Yeah. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me here today. I'm happy to participate. So I'm a professor of agronomy at the University of Kentucky. Been working in the hemp space since 2014 when the Farm Bill at that time made pilot research programs possible and practical. Uh, I will say that uh, Kentucky enjoys uh, a reputation for being advanced within the hemp space, and I would attribute that 100% to the efforts of the Kentucky Department of Agriculture in the way that they have managed what all would consider is a very, very complex program. They've addressed this opportunity very aggressively, and in my opinion, extremely efficiently. So Kentucky is where it is today because of the Kentucky Department of Agriculture. That said, uh, the university has participated uh, in these efforts uh, from day one, and we continue to do so. Uh, with the 2018 Farm Bill, I'm quite sure our efforts will expand uh, uh, accordingly, and uh, that's research and extension, as we are a land-grant institution. Great. And, and Dr. Williams, just because you just mentioned that, can, uh, Kentucky is probably at the forefront of, of, of where the hemp industry is and its evolution in the U.S. right now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like just from a high level of what the industry looks like? And, and maybe um, you mentioned kind of how, how that will accelerate due to the 2018 Farm Bill, how that might look different in the coming years. 
Right. Well, so a little bit of numbers. I'm a science guy. I'm, I'm all about data, right? Quantify when you can. So um, I, I'm not 100% sure these figures are uh, exact to the one one space, but uh, 16,000 uh, plus acres uh, licensed in 2018 for hemp production. I think about 6,700 acres actually planted in 2018. So uh, not half, not quite half of uh, of uh, what was licensed was actually planted. And, uh, to, you know, to me, I'm not an economist. I am an agronomist. I grow stuff for a living. But uh, uh, that, that kind of indicates to me that uh, that acreage, 6,700 or so acres, uh, meets the demand created by our capacity to process the crop. Uh, otherwise, uh, more of the 16,000 permitted acres uh, would have been planted. So uh, the supply and demand thing is clearly going to define the scope and scale of the industry. And uh, at least today, uh, the bottleneck or uh, uh, the, the stopping point for that is our capacity to process. Now, all that said, um, the vast majority of that effort is for floral material and CBD, big surprise. Uh, the numbers uh, are just ludicrous, if, if you want uh, the truth, and um, range from uh, maybe $2,000 an acre uh, gross income to as high as $40,000 an acre gross income. And uh, clearly at the top of that uh, scale, uh, it, that, that's not sustainable at any level uh, in any agricultural economy. So. Uh, wherever this supply and demand bubble uh, pops, uh, that will define what the value of the crop will be at that point in time. Uh, on a relative scale, 2019 post-farm bill, uh, over 1,000 applicants to the program, um, I think close to 1,100. And 91% um, of those applicants are interested in cannabinoid production. Um, you know, the, there's there's far less effort ongoing uh, today with uh, with the fiber and grain uh, components of, of the crop, and uh, the vast majority of interest is in CBD. Great. And what about the, the risk on the input side? Um, I, I obviously uh, you haven't been able to get hemp on a label because of, of uh, federal regulation. Is that changed now with the farm bill? Um, are are there going to are we going to start seeing more inputs, uh, including hemp on the label? Well, I'm probably not the best person in the United States to address that. But uh, from my perspective, having read the statement by the commissioner of the FDA released on the same day as the farm bill was signed, uh, it seems rather evident to me that the FDA has uh, a, a strong commitment uh, to further research in support of use of the molecule and some regulatory framework that surrounds the molecule after that research uh, provides a good definition of, of where it's gonna go. So um, when will that happen? I have no idea. It, I, I agree with Sev that uh, it's probably not reasonable to expect that to happen in 2019. Uh, it all depends on um, what type of work uh, the FDA requires uh, and what the existing, or excuse me, resulting uh, regulatory framework around the molecule ends up being after that work is done. Okay, I, uh, Matt 
ask the question, kind of getting more into uh, the latter half of our conversation here, which is about kind of the cultivation of, of hemp. What are the challenges, uh, planting, harvesting, storage, et cetera? And so, um, Dr. Williams, maybe you could start us off by just at a high level, um, you know, what conditions are necessary to grow hemp? I, I doubt uh, it's, it's, you know, a, a, it's capable of performing at the same level in every state in the nation. So what, uh, what considerations need to go into that? Right. So from 30,000 feet, uh, we want to probably immediately address the rhetoric that hemp is well adapted to marginal land. Uh, you can plant field corn on reclaimed strip mine land and you'll achieve a certain yield. Uh, you would expect the same yield depression to occur with industrial hemp. So bottom line, and this is a very gross generalization, we are looking at high productivity land, not poor quality land, uh, if yield is the uh, is the goal. So uh, that, again, that's a generalization. So um, it absolutely depends totally on what you're growing it for. Uh, CBD versus fiber versus grain slash dual purpose. And uh, the variety that you would choose uh, to produce each of those individual harvestable components uh, will absolutely define success or failure. So uh, variety selection based on the latitude uh, where you're uh, producing the crop uh, is, is just paramount to success. It, it's been our experience, and, and there's a paramount in the scientific literature that stress uh, tends to increase cannabinoid production in general. Uh, cannabinoids are uh, evolutionarily uh, thought of as a plant protection molecule uh, to discourage insects and discourage herbivory and uh, actually have a very light, not ex exceptional, uh, antimicrobial activity. So, um, you know, they certainly weren't put on this earth to get humans high. Uh, and so long, long before humans were involved with the species, uh, cannabinoids evolved as a, a method to uh, protect the plant from natural uh, attacks. So uh, when the plant's stressed, it kind of says, uh-oh, uh, need more protection so cannabinoid uh, production can increase. Uh, I, from our perspective as agronomist, uh, we're gonna rely on genetics uh, to keep our THC level low. And uh, th there's definitely a range. We don't know what the range is yet, but uh, if you're growing a line or a variety that hovers around 0.3%, uh, Zeb's exactly right. Uh, under the right conditions, uh, you can probably expect that that same variety uh, to exceed the 0.3% limit uh, under certain conditions. And, and what does a farmer do if they if they sample their hemp and, and uh, realize that their THC is over that threshold? Uh, so that's going to depend on uh, different states. Uh, the Farm Bill requires that states provide a testing protocol and a protocol to address exactly that problem. So in Kentucky, uh, they don't necessarily rely on just one test. So they would retest uh, that same crop a second time, usually at the expense of the farmer. Uh, the first test is uh, covered by the cost of the first test is covered by the application process to the program. So if you have to be tested twice, the farmer will probably pay for that. Uh, but you know, if it tests high twice, uh, then uh, there's gonna be a conversation about destroying the crop in Kentucky. Very interesting. And because the THC is actually a defense mechanism for the plant, and we as humans are trying to lower that THC level, does that make hemp more susceptible to, to pests and diseases than, um, you know, than uh, cannabis, for example? 
so yeah, right. So uh, natural defenses, uh, when we generally think about natural defenses, uh, that doesn't come anywhere close to protections provided by human inputs. So uh, you know, it, it allows hemp to probably survive as ditch weed uh, across the United States and Nebraska and other states uh, where it occurs endemically. Uh, but it, you know, it's not going to contribute a great deal to yield. And I would offer and uh, be interesting to have Zeb's input as well. Uh, when we talk about these clonal production systems, uh, which basically are anecdotal uh, to marijuana production systems, all female clones, all genetically identical within you know one little production model. Uh, biologically, that's just a nightmare. Uh, you know, you're inviting issues. If, if we, if the participants in this podcast, were all genetically identical and one of us caught the flu, I think it'd uh, be reasonably safe to assume the rest of us probably would as well. And that's exactly the same situation uh, you'll find with, uh, well, if you want to Google Southern corn blight in the 1970s uh, and see what happened to uh, the corn crop, uh, with the uh, advent of a new fungal pathogen across the United States, that's pretty much what you can expect to happen in these clonal production systems. Genetic diversity is a giant, giant contributor to natural plant defenses. What what other issues have have come up where a farmer you know ventures into growing hemp for the first time and they run into problems? What are the most common that you see? Uh, I think Kentucky, and this is a, a gross figure. I think we were just under a million pounds of certified seed production in Kentucky in 2018, and as far as I know, 100% of that production is uh, Western European varieties. There might have been one or two Eastern European varieties, but uh, so a total of about a million pounds. And that might sound like a lot, uh, but for industrial scale processing or, or planting, uh, it's it's not even a drop in the bucket. So uh, you know, clearly importation is, uh, is still the order of the day. I'll mention quickly, and Zev can weigh in, uh, when we're talking about clonal production systems, that's a totally different situation. And as far as I know, uh, not a single quote unquote variety, it's really not a variety, but not a single variety that we would call CBD rich uh, is protected by plant protection patents in the United States. The U.S. does have cooperative agreements with the EU and with Canada, and so any plant protection patent that exists in within the EU and within Canada will automatically be respected in Kentucky and in the United States. So uh, that's how we produce certified seed in Kentucky uh, under the patents that exist uh, within the EU and Canada. None of that data exists for clonal production systems or vegetative production systems today. So uh, really, I guess I'm not an attorney, but you can't own something that has no legal protection behind it. So uh, they're really not varieties. Uh, I, what botanical word you would use is debatable, uh, but uh, maybe lines or you could just simply say germplasm. Uh, I will mention uh, that we do have uh, an active fiber industry. We're not talking about textiles. We're talking about industrial applications. And uh, for the reasons that the KDA uh, addressed this opportunity so aggressively, we have what's essentially the only industrial scale vast fiber processing facility in Kentucky. Uh, they located here in 2015. It's the Sun Strand Corporation in Louisville. Uh, they're growing so fast, I can't hardly keep up with them. They have a plant in Louisville. Uh, they have a plant opening soon in Carroll County, Kentucky, in Carrollton. 
they have a plant in South Carolina that will concentrate largely on flax and not necessarily on hemp. And they also have a plant in Alberta, Canada, uh, concentrating on the dual purpose straw derived from the Canadian grain industry there. So uh, we absolutely have an active uh, fiber industry. And then redding becomes a big issue for farmers, redding the, the straw or the stems uh, prior to baling and, and delivery uh, to the processor. So it's kind of similar to the CBD problems. It's uh, the post-harvest processing uh, can be a real issue. And then secondly, I would note that um, with the exception of manual hand harvesting, uh, which is the order of the day for most clonal production systems for CBD. When you talk about fiber or you talk about grain production, uh, we do have harvest equipment issues. Uh, for fiber, we generally talk about hay equipment, so a, a hay bind or a hay mower, uh, followed by a rotary rake for turning during redding and uh, eventually uh, baling with one of the large bale, either round or square uh, balers. And, that, that's not problem free. And with grain production, uh, we're talking about a simple combine harvest, but um, a friend of mine, and I've said this a million times, they grew it for rope for a reason. Uh, the fiber, especially when it's uh, uh, not overredded, is extremely strong. And so it wraps around parts in combines. If you're trying to run too much of that biomass through the combine during harvest, it starts fires. I mean, it's real, it's a problem. So uh, that's another big issue that farmers face as well. All right, and um, maybe if we, we could go back to um, just kind of the, the growing process and, and some of the challenges that farmers have. Um, are, are, how are they overcoming the challenge now of limited inputs available on the marketplace to grow hemp? Yeah, that's a great question, Tim. And so uh, with the clonal production systems, uh, so far it's all uh, cultivation and really most of that is manual. You can do a little bit of mechanical cultivation until the crop reaches a certain growth stage, but from that point forward, uh, it's 100% uh, manual cultivation. Now, if, uh, if we're talking about gross income of 40 grand an acre, you can pay a lot of people uh, to pull weeds and chop weeds with hoes, but um, it's a good place, I think, for me to mention that depending on where the CBD industry evolves, what direction, in other words, is it a nutraceutical, is it in personal care products, uh, how broadly is the molecule distributed? Um, we haven't done work to actually quantify this. We're hopeful to uh, get that ball rolling in 2019, but uh, if you do simple mathematics uh, based on whether or not the plant's pollinated, uh, the populations per acre in the current production models, which are more like vegetable or tobacco production, and compare that to a broad acre model or a drilled slash row crop model. Uh, <laughs> just quite simply, I can make way more molecule per acre on a row crop model than any of the current uh, spaced plant, either tomato or tobacco production models could ever make. And so, you know, if, if the molecule ends up being broadly distributed across our economy in personal care products, in food, in medicine, in all of those spaces, and we need a lot of molecule. Um, I think this um, spaced plant female clone production model will be limited to uh, a niche market, um, an organic market, and then also, you know, there will be markets for local products. There's no, like we have local breweries today, there will definitely be markets for that type of CBD product. So, uh, but on a broad scale, on a, on a broad national scale, uh, I just can't imagine that this um, 
the Christmas tree model that Zeb uh, referred to, that's just, it's, it's probably not sustainable. The inputs are just too high. Um, yeah, and so, uh, if, you know, assuming plant breeding efforts will uh, uh, evolve along with the industry, which clearly they will, um, there's just no doubt that a, that a drilled model or a broad acre model uh, will, will predominate eventually. That changes everything, by the way, clearly. Um, you know, the, the, the supply of the molecule will go right through the ceiling. We all know what that does to the price of the molecule. It's just like corn and beans. It's exactly the same scenario. So where, where we find our equilibrium for supply and demand, uh, that's going to determine uh, what production model is most efficient. And it, it seems like, uh, Charles, I see your question. We'll get that to that too. But it, it seems like the biggest bottleneck to that right now is, is the processing capability. Is that true? Absolutely. Well, that and the ambiguity about the ultimate regulatory framework mm. that will be put forth by the federal government. I mean, clearly, that's going to have just a giant impact on uh, on the scope and scale of that part of the industry. And, and uh, I hope we won't leave here today without talking maybe a little bit more about the other aspects, especially fiber and grain. Yeah, let's let's get to that real quick. Let's get to Charles' question, then we'll we'll get that direction. Charles is asking, do you uh, do you need to use bees for pollination? No, it's wind pollinated. It's an open open pollinated, wind pollinated. Bees love hemp crops, and I maybe shouldn't say this, but uh, it's probably the best dove crop on the planet. That, that birds of all species love the grain, including doves, and uh, bees are very very attractive uh, attracted to. Uh, to both dioecious and monoecious lines. Great. Well, let, let's go there a little bit. We've been talking a lot about CBD, uh, but take us into some of the other exciting aspects about hemp. Well, okay. So very quickly, um, I, I, again, I'm an agronomist, right? I grow stuff for a living, so I'm, I'm not an engineer, whatever. But uh, if you just consider that all injected, molded, composite, plastic-type products, all of those today contain fiber. And almost without exception today, they're synthetic fibers. Well, there is definitely a movement in that industry globally towards inclusion of natural fibers, replacing synthetic or man-made fibers. That's just one tiny facet of uh, the potential for natural fibers. Uh, insulation, both acoustic and thermal, uh, other applications and like the car parts we've all heard of. Uh, the, the potential applications for natural fibers is globally is just absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, I, I would offer far, far broader uh, than probably the CBD potential is. Uh, the, 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 the potential that it could have places in many different parts of our lives on a global scale. Now, uh, the, the company that I mentioned earlier, Sunstrand, as far as I know, are the only industrial scale facility in all of North America. Clearly that's temporary. Yeah, they'll, they'll have competition soon. But uh, I mentioned where they're located today. Uh, they're clearly growing very rapidly, which means uh, that they're able to sell product. And most of the product they're selling today is uh, for R&D purposes with companies that make things like car parts or make things like insulation on a national or very, very broad scale. Um, that's extremely encouraging in my opinion. Now, very quickly, um, fiber economics are vastly different than cannabinoid or CBD economics. We're talking about a crop now that's equally, not more, but equally profitable to $5 corn and $11 beans. And it fits very well in the rotation 
uh, with corn and beans. And so, uh, you know, the potential there is for farmers to have a new species to include in their rotation, which is always agronomically wise, big newsflash. And then secondarily, uh, it spreads the risk on, on any uh, broad acre uh, operation. So, uh, you know, with a contract for your hemp fiber crop, uh, you know, it's a little different than uh, putting it in an elevator and waiting until the price is what you expect it to be. Uh, and so there is potential for that. Uh, I'll try to be brief here. The grain uh, potential, I, I, can, I just can't know what the ultimate demand for those products will be. Uh, if you look over time at the Canadian hemp grain industry, uh, we'll see that normal uh, you know, peak and valley uh, type uh, distribution over time where uh, production exceeds demand and uh, you know, the subsequent years you'll have a much lower production. And so uh, that's based essentially on demand in the United States. Uh, the most of their products have been exported here, uh, a fair amount of them in the recent years to Asia, but that market is not what it was at one time. And so, uh, again, I'm not an economist, but when you look at that distribution over time, that means that demand is essentially being met uh, by the current supply. So will the demand with increased marketing efforts in the United States increase such that U.S. farmers uh, will be including grain type hemp crops within their normal rotation. If, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't work at UK, right? I'd be a very wealthy man. So um, we don't know the answer to that yet, but you can buy hemp grain products today in Kentucky and in other locations. So it's not new. Now it hasn't been marketed well or strongly, so that will have an impact, but we don't know what the ultimate demand is gonna be. So, in summary, I'm very excited about the potential for natural fibers in our society globally. And it's not just hemp. There are other vast fiber species like flax and canaf and others uh, that could be just as important as hemp. But hemp is very marketable. So there will always be a market for hemp fiber. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that potential. Hemp grain, there's going to be a market. They're going to press oil. They're going to have protein powder. Uh, there are lots of positive attributes about it. There are other oil seeds that uh, fit in the exact same space. So, you know, that's, it's going to have competition. And I don't know what the scope and scale of that market will ultimately be. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder. It's not a silver bullet. It's on a you know, panacea. It's, uh, th there's some really, really good reasons to be excited about it. But, uh, you know, we'll have to take it with a grain of salt, too. You, you mentioned that it fits in really well with um, in the rotation with corn and beans. Can you just tell us what, why you say that? Right. So if you're growing hemp for fiber, you're interested in biomass production. So you're going to plant this basically, essentially, as early in the season as you can, and you're going to grow it for as long in the season as you can to achieve maximum biomass production. So in Kentucky, and I think pretty much everywhere, we're going to plant in April or May and probably harvest around frost or sometime in September and October. Uh, that fits the corn uh, portion of our rotation uh, perfectly, extremely well. If you're growing for grain, uh, with the varieties we have available today, there are very few options for what we would call full season hemp grain varieties. And the reason for that is that they would be so tall at the end of the growing season, it's way too much biomass to pass through a, a standard combine when you're trying to harvest the grain. So we're gonna look at varieties that we're gonna plant in June and hopefully only be maybe four feet tall and still achieve that thousand pounds or more per acre grain production, which we need to be profitable with hemp grain, but still have a harvestable crop. 
something we don't have to run a bunch of straw through uh, to get the grain. So in Kentucky, uh, we're often planting beans in June. Uh, following a wheat rotation. So, uh, yeah, that, that fits both of those components of our standard rotation perfectly so. Can you just tell us on a practical level, what, what are, and I know obviously it depends on a number of factors, but give us a ballpark as far as what yield uh, farmers are seeing growing hemp. Right. So I'm, I'm going to actually approach that backwards, Tim. What yields do we need? right, to compete with current commodities. So we need uh, about five tons per acre of baled material for a dedicated fiber crop uh, in order to compete well with $5 corn and $10 or $11 beans, okay? We need about a 1,000 pounds of grain, dry grain per acre uh, to compete with corn and beans. So, you know, it, it's there's no economic sense uh, it might be fun, but there's no economic sense to farmers producing hemp fiber or hemp grain if they can't make some money. And so everybody knows that. Again, big news flash. But so, you know, the prices for hemp fiber and grain uh, clearly take that into account. So we need five tons of, of baled uh, dry matter per acre for fiber. We need a thousand pounds of grain per acre or more. And we can achieve both of those today with available variety. So we're there. And plant breeding will only increase uh, those opportunities. The cannabinoids, sorry for the chuckle. I mean, that's just a, just a totally different economic model. I've already spent considerable effort talking about what I think is going to happen in that space. I don't know any of that, but uh, I just can't imagine that this high, high input uh, female clonal production model is going to be the most efficient long term. And I, I know this may be a little bit out of the scope of what you focus on, but I'm just curious, uh, as, as it stands right now, how much CBD might come from an average acre? Great question. So uh, I can only speak about Kentucky. I don't know what Zev and others see in Colorado, uh, but we're, so, uh, we're going to make up some numbers here, kind of, sort of. If you're looking at 1,000 to 1,500 plants per acre, okay, in a tomato or, or a, a plastic culture where we have plastic mulch with drip tape irrigation, uh, five feet or so between rows and so on, uh, about 1,000 to 1,500 plants per acre, and that, that's a tomato production model. On average in Kentucky, we're achieving yields of about a pound of floor, extractable floor material per plant. So 1,000 to 1,500 uh, pounds of, of floor material per acre. And uh, if that's 10% CBD, uh, that would be phenomenal. Yeah, that'd be at the, kind of sort of the top end. There might be examples where slightly more than 10% is derived. So uh, if, if, if we consider that, then, you know, 10% of 1,000 is 100 pounds of molecule per acre. And the value of that is just all over the board. I am not exaggerating when I talk about a range of uh, $2,000 per acre for that same exact floor material, ranging all the way to $40,000 plus per acre. So, um, <laughs> again, when the supply and demand uh, equilibrium is reached, uh, and uh, that, that will determine what the ultimate value of the molecule is. Yeah, it's pretty undefined with that, with that big range right now. Yeah, that's not sustainable. It's right. just it's ludicrous is what it right. is. Yeah. Uh, well, we've, uh, Nestor has a question. This will be our last question for Dr. Williams before we call it. Uh, oh, actually, we got a buzzer beater here. One more question, too. So uh, Nestor is asking, any issues reported uh, from producers with fungal and bacterial pests, and, and how do they treat those? Great question. So there, uh, just very quickly, there are no pesticides of any form 
labeled for hemp production in the United States. That will probably change in the not too distant future, but how do we control those? Well, we don't today. There are no fungicides that you can apply to hemp crops, regardless of whether it's CBD fiber or grain. Uh, there are, there's one brand spanking new, um, never before identified fungal pathogen that's very active and very destructive in the clonal production systems. And it's exactly the biological framework that I discussed earlier. When you have a bunch of genetically identical individuals, you are asking for biological issues. Okay, so uh, I, I don't know what her website is, so I'm gonna give her name and I hope she won't be mad at me. Uh, Nicole Gauthier, and that's spelled G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R, is a plant pathologist at the University of Kentucky, and she has a hemp website at UK, and she is the scientist that has done a, a lot of excellent work in identifying this new pathogen and uh, providing guidance to growers with clonal production systems and trying to combat the issues with that new fungal pathogen. So uh, if the shortest of answers is yes, there's a big problem in clonal production systems. We haven't seen any giant yield impacting problems with those type of pests in a, in a, a, a crop derived from seed with genetic diversity. Uh, how much water does it need? We need to think of it in terms of our standard commodity crops. So it, it will react to excess and a lack of water, very similar to corn or tomatoes. Dr. Williams, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, there's been a great deal of interest in this topic. I look forward to sharing this with everyone else. If somebody wants to follow up with you about some of the work you do, is there a way we could point them to uh, get in contact with you? Uh, yes. Yeah, so my email address is david.williams at uky.edu. Okay, I hope that answered some questions you had about the hemp industry. I know it certainly did for me. Um, and if there's any questions you, you still have, you can always go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. Leave me a voicemail. I'll try to get back in touch with Dr. Williams or if it's from last week with Zev uh, to try to get them to answer on a future episode as well. Uh, if you'd like to do that, please feel free. Hey, I have got some inbound requests for some content on the show this year that I'm really, really excited about. So I hope you'll stick with me. Subscribe to the show because uh, there's going to be some fascinating stories about the future of agriculture coming at you here in 2019. Stay tuned. Thanks. We'll be back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Thank you.